Hello, welcome back to the Naked Security Podcast. My name is Greg Iden, and I'm going to be your transient Anna Brading while she suffers from a case of the throat lurgy. Get well soon, Anna. And I'll also be your temporary Alice Duckett as, she, as she's enjoying some well-deserved time off. So I'm here with security guru Paul Ducklin. Hello, Greg. Hey, Duck. I'm here also with elite instant responder Peter McKenzie. <laughs> Hi, Greg. I hope you're enjoying how I'm bigging you up, getting excited. Um, so <laughs> this week, Peter is going to be covering the surprising removal of 500 extensions for Google Chrome. Uh, I'm going to be covering the story of someone who didn't give over their hard drive password to law enforcement. And Duck is going to be covering security cavities that have been discovered in blue teeth. Wait, sorry, is it Bluetooth? Ha, 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 ha. Oh, that's a joke, yes. We realise now it, it wasn't a mistake. <laughs> Come back, Anna. <laughs> I do apologise, listeners. Hopefully this will be the last time uh, I do both the producing and hosting. And the comedy. <laughs> and the co- <laughs> sorry. <laughs> All right, so, Peter, what's been going on in Chrome? Yes, so Chrome sort of abruptly removed 500 extensions from their web store. So uh, this isn't Android phone apps. This is the Chrome web extensions, so the type of little extensions you add to your browser. And yeah, 500 of them mysteriously disappeared. And this all comes from a researcher called Jamila, and hopefully I'm saying this right, Jamila Kaya. Kaya. Um, She basically installed this uh, Duo security application, which is a free bit of software from Duo. It's a free extension that you can put into your browsers. And it's basically designed to be pushed out across your network and report on the usage of extensions across your user base. And using this, she started spotting some odd extensions that seem to have a lot of permissions more than they they needed and um the reason why i like this story is because this is just it's just a a researcher i, I don't know who she works for uh, or if this is part of her daily job or not but i liked it because it's the type of research i like doing where you start with something almost insignificant could be malicious might not be and you just keep digging keep digging and finding more and more data until you find something quite interesting and leading to Google uh, acknowledging the fact that they had at least 500 malicious extensions on their web store that they had nothing, uh, no information about and uh, had some of them been there over a year. So it's sort of, Peter, like like scratching that little rust spot on your car door and think, I wonder how bad this is, and you scratch, and then suddenly your finger goes through, and then your whole fist goes through, and then the car falls apart in front of you. <laughs> but there may be, once you, once you know what to look for and where to look, it's surprising how much badness you sometimes find if no one else has been looking either. Yeah, and I mean... So when we had the Naked Security article posted for this, um, the question was, Google has removed 500 bad extensions. Great. But also, why didn't they know about these sooner? Yeah. Yes, because that's curated, right? That's that's the whole idea of using the Chrome Store like you use Google Play or Apple's App Store is it's supposed to set a much, much higher standard than just downloading any old thing from anywhere. Yeah, exactly. These are meant to be, you know, a better chance of being safe. Yeah, tried and trusted. Yeah. And um, think what I said. I like about the security community that we're all part of is that anyone doesn't matter if you're working for Google or, you know, sat at home not working for anyone. You can play a part and help uh, other people. So what? Um, so so Jamila, uh, she installed um, the name of the Duo security tools CRX 
Cavita. Um, and oh, I just got it. It's Chrome Extension Excavator, oh, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> very kind. I didn't notice that. Jury, you need better marketing. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, I'm very slow at these yeah. things. Yeah. So um, what she spotted was the extensions had all these extra permissions for. Or, you know, the type of stuff that you wouldn't expect these things to have permissions for. And she kept on digging. And then she found that actually they were doing click fraud, which is when they're clicking on adverts in the background. It uh, doesn't really affect you as the victim, but for the companies that are paying for those adverts to be there and then having to pay out the money for those clicks, it obviously affects them. Well, it kind of could affect you, you know, Peter. Imagine you're in a business where you're expected to conduct your Self, um, you know, with with some decency or decorum at work, and it's expected that you're not going crazy clicking on weird ads that might be considered to be showing an interest in unsuitable products or competitor stuff, whatever it is. That you still show up as the person that did the clicks, and you can't really go and say, "Oh, well, it must have been this extension I installed." Uh, well, you can, but it does look as though you've been doing a whole load of stuff. And if those clicks are going to an ad site that isn't just about ads, but maybe has some connection with malware, then it does leave yeah. you basically holding the baby, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's what she found. So a lot of more click fraud, uh, a lot of them um, were, I think it was uh, 60 to 70% of the redirects um, that uh, these extensions took your browser to were linked to malware. Yikes. So... There is a there is a, you know a definite risk to you sixty from to seventy percent of the fraudulent the links. Surges. So they weren't just ads; they were actually they had there was some adware malware dodginess in the background that could have ended up. There was malvertising, there was click fraud, and there was redirects to sites hosting malware. So it's not just that you click a you click a site that you don't wish to be seen as endorsing. It's that you could end up with something crypto mining in your browser yeah. or trying to foist dodgy software on your computer that yeah. will outlive your browser. And of course, a lot of this, this isn't you even clicking them. This, this is all invisible to yeah. you. This is just the extensions doing this behind the, your back. But if seven, 70%, I mean, that's nearly three quarters of them. Mm -hmm. So how come yeah. Google didn't notice that until this independent <laughs> researcher kind of spotted it? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the kind of uh, thing you'd expect them to spot. But unfortunately, for whatever reason, they didn't. Now, uh, um, it's probably an argument for another day about, you know, are they putting enough effort into this or not? But I don't want to necessarily blame Google. We know other browsers, Firefox, they recently removed, I think it was 197 um, malicious extensions. Yeah, that sounds so much better, doesn't it, <laughs> than 200? <laughs> Well, yeah. But um, no, I, I, what I liked was that, as I said, we're a community. We all help. doesn't matter if you're Google. doesn't matter if you're an individual researcher. You can all make a difference here. So the fact that Google missed it, fine. I'm sure they found others that the other researchers haven't. So let's move away from that. I think it's this, this is good that these have been identified, regardless of who identified them. Um, but yeah, and then what she saw, so she found these extensions, um, but then, you know, an extension by itself, you know, you, that's not a pattern. That doesn't, you know, how do you go from there to 500? So she started looking at the code, seeing similarities in the code, seeing similarities in the uh, command and control um, domains they were connecting. Uh, and... 
that's when she, I, well, I believe that's when she reached out to Duo Security themselves and uh, a researcher called Jacob Rickard at uh, Duo. And they worked together and I believe they found several hundred other uh, extensions that were of a similar nature and they reported this to Google and then Google taking their research they applied that and they found over 500 so that's where the 500 came from and it looks like some of them had been there for years of the the 70 that um, Jamila originally found uh, most of them seem to have started in January 2019 with a big ramp up in March and June where uh, dozens were being seen added each month um, and in total for the 500 um, Google has estimated that 1.7 million people have installed them in their browsers. For those that have them installed then, are they going to find they're automatically deleted? Are they going to be still in their browser? Do people need to do anything about this? They are still in their browser, but Google has deactivated them. So if you're wondering why one of your extensions is randomly deactivated, that could be why. Unfortunately, Google haven't published a list of the 500. But yes, 1.7 million people have now had these extensions uh, disabled and you know, who knows how long they had them installed and what may have happened. That's uh, unknown, I'm afraid. Peter, one of the things that was interesting to me about this is if you look at Duo's list of what they call the indicator index, the the way that they that they kind of went from the 70 original ones to try and f- find out how far the tendrils went. Some of them, they, they have a list of a couple of hundred, uh, which are listed by the, the full name. Some are listed by the hexadecimal ID of the extension, which I presume is, is a unique identifier. And then for the rest, they, they just figured, okay, let's follow some theme. So they'll, I presume they were doing substring matching on the actual plugin names. And a lot of them seem to be things, you know, where in the name contains something like quiz or survey. Why would anyone want an extension for a quiz? <laughs> right? 1.7 million people disagree with you, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> if you're installing it, browser extensions, whatever browser you're using, whether it's Chrome or Firefox or Edge or whatever it might be, what you need to remember is that thing basically knits itself into your browser. So it sees all the traffic that you're generating and uploading before it gets encrypted, and it sees all the stuff that comes back into your browser, largely speaking, after it's been decrypted. So anything like HTTPS or TLS encryption, that that's irrelevant to the extension. It's inside your browser, and it kind of has equivalent power to your browser. Be very, very, very conservative about the stuff that you plug into your browser to give it extra functionality. Yeah. Well, this same advice can be extended onto to th- uh, onto things like Facebook, right? The entire Cambridge Analytica kind of scandal kind of began with them uh, amassing a huge amount of data, which had been gathered from some Facebook quiz app, right? So people had added the quiz thing, they'd sort of fill it in. I think it was some kind of survey or... Well, even worse, Greg, it was, it was essentially a psychometric test. Hey, find out yeah. what kind of person <laughs> you are. So whether... And everyone wants to blame Facebook, but really, like, do you want to just download some random third-party thing? Why would you want to share with someone you've never met and don't know the kind of stuff that normally you'd only ever talk about on a sort of psychiatrist's couch or something? If I can win an iPad, definitely. <laughs> it is incredible to think about the type of information you fill in in these type of forms, even if it's even just giving your name or anything as simple as that. If someone on the street came up to you that you had no idea who they were and they just started saying, can you tell me, when's your birthday? What's your name? 
Where's your street address? All of these questions, complete stranger. You'd you'd back away going, what on earth is going on? But on the internet... Well, it does depend if they're going to come up and ask me what Disney princess I might be, because, I mean, I kind of want to know. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so, yeah, so um, regarding... We always like to give advice. So you can quite simply go into Chrome. You just click on the settings option, then extensions, and then it will show you all the extensions you've got installed. And you can click details next to each one of them, and it will tell you the permissions that application has. And I I look at mine today. It's, it's quite interesting just to see what they do have. Most seem to have the ability to look at your browsing history, some uh, your downloads, various bits like that. But uh, mine all seem fairly safe. But yeah, that's a nice easy way, and it's quite revealing just to see what extensions you actually have and what they can see. But then because my main concern is that most users aren't going to do any of this, I do like what Google has done as well. So they have. They've done two things. One, they've implemented a new data privacy policy um, that basically has hardened the requirements that these applications, these extensions must have. So, you know, they they can't just go and ask for all these permissions without reason. And if they do, then they're going to be in breach. So Google will have an easier time identifying them and removing them. That's all good. But of course, you're still relying on Google actually doing that. So the other thing they've done is they're encouraging the community, more people like Jamila, to actually look for dodgy extensions and basically have bug bounties. They will pay out money to people that help find these and report them. So I think that's probably going to have the, the biggest effect. So other budding security community researchers out there, go and uh, find some extensions and maybe Google will be paying you some money soon. Nice one. Thanks. Thanks, Peter. Uh, all right. So next story uh, is one I'm covering, which is going to be about uh, a suspect who refused to decrypt their hard drives, and they've been released now after four years. What, the hard drives or the person? <laughs> the, the person. I think. I imagine the police still have the hard drives. Um, so this is a piece written by Johnny Dunn, one of our writers on Naked Security. Um, and it's about the contentious case of a man that was held in custody since 2015 for effectively refusing to decrypt two of the hard drives. Uh, and it appears to have now reached a resolution of sorts that the US Court of Appeals has basically ordered his release. So this is about a former Philadelphia uh, police sergeant called Francis Rawls, uh, who was arrested in September 2015, uh, and during which there were some uh, external hard drives were seized, as along with some computers and stuff from his home. Um, now, it's uh, under the sort of, uh, I think the prosecutors are saying that this, sadly Francis Rawls and the contents of these drives supposedly contain sort of child pornography, that this person had been trying to download it off the internet, and, and clearly the evidence is sort of probably hiding in these hard drives, and they want want him to decrypt them. But then Rawls claimed he did not know or he'd forgotten the passcodes for those drives. Uh, and I think that's what his lawyers have effectively been arguing. Uh, and and the, also there's this problem of if he goes and reveals the passwords for those, that's a, uh, violating the Fifth Amendment rights that they have, which is against self-incrimination. Uh, it's kind of one of the protections uh, the US has. So Rawls has now been released on the basis that basically civil contempt doesn't allow you, uh, prosecutors to hold a witness longer than 18 months. And he's been in prison for four years. Um, um, but there's some other interesting things about this. I, 
I mean, this kind of story is something we hear a lot of. Um, there's a lot of these kind of the law enforcement coming up against encryption, right? And that encryption getting in their way of them being able to do what they need to do. You know, sometimes it, there's sort of some pushback because we all fear that, you know, law enforcement wants to do something nefarious with it. But here there's quite a legitimate case. And it sounds like, you know, actual evidence that they need access to is hiding on these encrypted drives and testament to Apple's file vault encryption. As I believe these were encrypted on uh, using a Mac, uh, the police and law enforcement have not been able to get at them they can't decrypt them um i'd like to ask what you both think because i personally i have a history of cryptography supporting our encryption products and i just kind of believe you know law enforcement shouldn't have uh you know can't blanche access to these kind of things i think it's, it seems it this is not a, a new issue uh to do with search and seizure is it i don't think they they necessarily needed the password they just said we have a warrant to search your stuff and here we're facing essentially this is a safe that's locked. And you said, oh, I've, I can't find the key. You know, in the case of a safe, they'd then uh, you know, hire in a safe cracker, and come and drill the lock. And probably if they were fortunate, they might be able to get in. You know, they could blow the doors off. If they can't do that with crypto, then you know, they can say, well, you actually have to help us. We have a warrant to do this search and you can't stand in our way. And if you do, then you're in the contempt of the court. And it seems that that's really the issue here. I agree with you about the idea of putting in back doors so that law enforcement could get in anyway if they wanted. That's crazy because we know that back doors reach everybody Absolutely. and that will just be that'll just be merry, merry time for the crooks. It'll be much worse than if you don't have back doors. But I think you've got to see it from law enforcement's side. They've got a warrant. They've got reasonable suspicion. They want to look in the drive. The guy says, oh, well, uh, you know, what a surprise. I can't remember the password. The court's allowed to make an inference that maybe he jolly well does know the password, and he's just refusing to do it because maybe he figures, you know, he'll do two or four years in custody instead of the 20 years he might face if he knows what's on there. That seems to be the argument that says this is reasonable. Yeah. Well, that's the crazy one because, I mean, so we over here have the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act 2000 or Ripper as it's commonly sort of nicknamed. But I, if I'm – I may be – paraphrasing it incorrectly, but you can effectively be guilty of failing to disclose access codes to electronic devices under the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act. So effectively, it can almost be a slight crime to not be providing authorities access to encrypted things or providing them with passwords. And I know that there's actually been several people who've been prosecuted under this. I know one person served nine months for failing to give over encryption keys. Um, I think that was back in like 2009. And we had another one in 2010 where uh, another person, again, didn't provide encryption keys. And I think they were sentenced to something like I can't remember what it was it was like I, you know again it was it, it was a small amount of time which is almost it, it's almost as if well it's better to encrypt it and not provide the passwords and just do the time for not being able to provide the passwords because that's probably going to be less than whatever crime you've done on those drives which that seems kind of problematic right it's almost like incentivizing hey there's a lesser crime here that you can get done you know that you can get done for which is just not handing over encryption keys versus the actual crime that they're trying to prosecute you for, but they can't get the evidence for. This is not a problem that's unique to IT or cybersecurity, is it? You know, the, in the UK, exactly the same thing happened when things like uh, blood and breath tests were introduced for uh, alcohol, blood alcohol, um, while driving. Is that, you know, well, if you just refuse to take the test, you can never be prosecuted. So now if you're stopped and there's reasonable suspicion to think that you've been drinking and you refuse to take the breath test, then in the UK, you'll be 
prosecuted for failing to provide a specimen. And guess what? The penalty is the same as if you get busted for drink driving. <laughs> so, right. you know, the, the idea being that you, there's no reason for you not to comply. Now, it's a more clear cut case. Yeah. And I think we can all agree that there is no easy answer to this. Because, I, I mean, I like, I like your safe analogy. Um, you know, if, if you refuse to open the safe, they break in. Uh, well, if you take it to the encryption cyber things, you're saying, well, I'm not letting you break in. You don't have the technology. So we're saying, well, actually, if I'm not opening the safe, should you really be breaking into it? Do you, you know, you, how do you take the same parallel, the same analogy and put it into those other situations? And I think what you just said about the refusing to give the, the breathalyzing, you know, when you potentially drink driving, well, actually they, yeah, they are finding you guilty because you refuse to hand over the evidence, even though that evidence may have proved you're innocent, but is it really their right to demand these things from you, this this private information? Or I guess the difference here is that, that the guy's kind of tossing a coin, isn't he? He isn't saying, no, I refuse to do it because I have the right not to incriminate myself. He's saying sort of, look, guys, I'd really love to help out. You know, I know you've got a warrant and all that, but you know what? It just slipped my mind. And well, it, I, we can't forget that it may genuinely have. That's so true. We can't yeah. prove that he is lying. That argument of if you've done nothing wrong, you've got nothing to hide. Anyone says that to me, it's like, okay, well, what's your PIN number? You know, you, you, everyone has information they don't want to hand out. You know, well, it, it's much more important than that, Peter. Everybody has information that in some way they're actually obliged to hide. If mm. you think about that PIN number for your bank, cash card is that you have a, con- a, a contract, essentially, an agreement with the bank that you will not reveal it, not to anybody under any circumstances. And even more so if you're a business, thinking of GDPR, when you're collecting data for customers, yes, you have to hide it. They can have a right to get it back later and get you to delete it, but you're supposed to protect that to go to great lengths to stop the wrong people finding out about it. So the fact that you've got nothing to hide doesn't mean that it isn't imperative that you keep at least some of that secure and secret. I think the problem is people don't realize that they have things worthy of keeping secret. I used to make a joke to people about this. I said, if you have nothing to hide, then go on a Facebook, do that backup feature and give me the entire backup of everything you've ever done on Facebook ever. (laughs) Like, give me all your conversations, give me all your chat messages, all your images, give me, give it to me and I'll, I'll go through it all. And they're always like, no, you're not going through all of that. I'm like, well, what have you got, what have you got to fear? We've got to hide. Why did you hand it out to that quiz you filled in earlier? (laughs) (laughs) So I guess we, we should try and give some pra- pragmatic advice here. I don't want to give anyone advice to if you, you are trying to withhold evidence, but I would say one tiny piece of advice is to go and look and understand your laws that you have around sort of, you know, this kind of area, you know, Ripper in UK and so on, um, because you may find yourself in a sticky situation should you not be able to prove your in- innocence. So if you do encrypt stuff, maybe keep a backup of those keys in a safe or something. Uh, don't forget your encryption passwords uh, and be able to comply with law enforcement should you be innocent and It'll be in your interest to to prove it to him as well. But don't let this put you off encryption by thinking, oh, oh, golly, what if I encrypt something and then I genuinely forget the password? Will I automatically be in trouble? Awesome. All right. Well, great story, Greg. Yeah, thanks, Greg. You're welcome, Greg. Okay. Um, We need a proper host next time. All right. So, uh, Doug, you're going to tell us all about these uh, scary new Bluetooth discoveries. I am. Uh, (laughs) This is... 
I like this story because it's what we on Naked Security, we call a Buane, which is our little jargon word for bug with an impressive name. You know, you remember things like Heartbleed and Logjam and Rambleed and what was what was it? Um, I was thinking of, um, I, I'm trying to avoid saying the word f***wit, um, which was a name for one of those leakages for a while. I'll beep that out. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, you, you didn't do that good to her at avoiding that. Is that the first time we've had swearing on the podcast? Yikes. Uh, that stayed in, yes. But, but I guess f***wit actually was a legitimate name for a fancy bug, though, wasn't it? Actually, as an aside, this has got nothing to do with the Bluetooth bug. I figured when I'm writing this up, I can't possibly... I'm not going to write that because it may offend people and it, you know they, they might get in trouble at work for typing in that, those letters. So I put F star star... K wit, except I didn't. I put F star star C K W I T. So I put in two stars, but only replaced one letter, and that kind of stuck. And other people started using it, and then then readers started saying, <laughs> "Why are there two stars Why in that name?" Stars? And I couldn't come up with a reason. I had to be honest and say I botched up. I couldn't even yeah. do search and replace properly. It was for the um, Intel vulnerabilities, wasn't it? In the chips, yeah. Um, it was that you know the stuff that lets you leak data. This is, this is called Svein Tooth, and when I say it's a Buane bug with an impressive name, what I mean is the finders, you know, when people find bugs like this, that these are three researchers from a university in Singapore, you know, I can understand they're very proud of themselves, they want to make a big deal of it, so they got they get a special website, a domain name, they got a special logo, and they need a cool name. And I do like the name, although they haven't got it historically quite right. Correct. So Bluetooth is named after Harald Bluetooth, who was a 10th century Danish king. And didn't brush his teeth? <laughs> oh, that'd be green tooth, wouldn't it? <laughs> the, the Bluetooth logo is basically the, the start of his name in the runic alphabet. And uh, his son was called Svein, and his son actually became the first Danish king of England, believe it or not. Uh, This was a a much more brutal age than we live in today, and the son basically ousted his father, forced him into exile, took over the kingship, eventually became king of England. So it was... was, And he was called Svein Forkbeard. So this (laughs) this bug should really be called Forkbeard, but they actually called it Svein Tooth because the idea is it's 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 like preying on Bluetooth. Uh, amazing what you can learn on a cybersecurity podcast. But what these guys <laughs> did, they figured, hey, let's let's look for some bugs that are that are inside, if you like, the firmware that goes with the chipset that's inside, or the chipsets that are inside a whole plethora of Bluetooth devices. And it just so happened now that they found, I think, seven vendors of the actual core chipsets were vulnerable, but they were cautious to say, we're not saying that we tested 100 vendors and these seven are the bad ones. I think it's just that of the devices they got hold of, those were the seven vendors whose chipsets were used, and so they're the ones where they found problems. So firstly, the interesting thing here is the scale of the problem. And secondly, when they took those seven vendors of the chipsets, the things that you build into your Bluetooth device, whether it's a you know a fitness tracker or a, a an internet webcam or a doorbell, whatever it might be, or a, you know a, a remotely controllable power plug, um, they quickly found 480 products apparently just with one search. So these bugs, although they're somewhat, most of them are somewhat minor, they're kind of littered through the IoT world, and good luck finding which devices by which manufacturers sold under which brand names have these particular chipsets in. 
and they actually found, I think, 10 bugs in total, all to do with the protocol when you're setting up a Bluetooth low energy connection. That was all there was to it. And in nine of the cases, they were just good old-fashioned buffer overflows. So really basic programming bugs. And although they couldn't exploit these bugs, they did find that they could fairly easily, for quite a range of devices, they could either cause the device to crash completely, in which case most of them would just reboot and start up with their defaults again, or they could cause the device to go into essentially an infinite loop and freeze up. So do they have to have sort of physical access, you know, do they have to be within a few meters? They do. That's that's the other good side, if you like, the good side to this is it's all to do with the actual Bluetooth low energy connection. So it's not something that's in a much higher level part. This is right down at the chipset level. So it's how the how the chipset, the Bluetooth part of the device, deals with communicating with other Bluetooth devices that are in range. Mm. So the good news is that in, in nine out of 10 of the bugs they found, they can crash your device, but the person has to kind of get pretty close to you anyway. It's still rather annoying, though, if, they, if, if somebody who's just walking past your flat or is outside your hotel room can somehow crash the power plug that you've got that causes it to turn off until for safety reasons until you go and reset it well i'm just wondering i'm wondering what other bluetooth devices around i mean obviously there are bluetooth door locks and it's used in cars so i wonder door locks were one what some that the products they picked were kind of random assemblage so i don't think it's saying oh well this type of device is worse than that type of device is better than that type of device yeah no i was just i was i mean for door locks you'd assume if they crashed they default to locked rather than unlocked um but i was just well that depends that depends on the regulator where they are right in mm. some cases when door when door locks fail they're obliged to fail open so that people don't get stuck inside so it's i I presume if it's something like a bike padlock yes it's just going to stay locked and then you're going to have to go and get an angle grinder i also um um, i just googled uh because i was wondering if they existed and yes you can have bluetooth pacemakers so that's obviously a concern yes (laughs) i i imagine that they are subject to the sort of although they may have insecurities uh I presume that they they reset in a way that is kind of uh, thoughtful to the person who has them installed. We can but hope. There was a tenth bug, which was a little more worrying because of the ease with which they were able to find it and and the nature of the bug. And I forget that uh, I, I didn't didn't really want to name them, but I've forgotten that the actual chipset vendor in this case. There's an aspect of Bluetooth low energy that many people who have Bluetooth devices will be familiar with called pairing. And the idea of pairing is that you come close to the device and you connect to it, but you can't connect yet because the device doesn't know who you are. And in order to do a little, you do a cryptographic dance where you share a long-term encryption key that both devices can use in future so they can connect automatically from then on. And generally, if you've ever paired a device, you'll know that either you have to put in a pin code or something, or usually there's a physical button that you have to press on the device so that you're connecting to with your app. So the idea is that it's not just enough for somebody to run next to you if it's a fitness tracker and like come and pair with the device without you realizing. You have to stop and give informed consent, usually by pressing a button or holding something down on your device. Once you've done that, you're basically you're giving the other person a cryptographic key that lets them in in the future. And what these 
guy, the researchers discovered with this particular device is they would say to the other device, hey, I'd like to pair with you. And the other device would say, go ahead, like let, let's get this going. So it hasn't got to the point that it's getting the informed consent from the user yet. And then what they would do is they would then just bail out of the pairing process and go through attempting to create a connection. And of course, that should fail because the other device will go, I've never heard of you before. So in theory, that should be completely safe, except that it seemed that the bug was, if you tried to connect after initiating pairing that you did not complete, the other end would just blindly assume that your cryptographic key was, guess what, all zeros. What? <laughs> so you could come in, you say, I want to start pairing, get ready, don't ask the user yet, I'm just teeing everything up. Are, are, you, are, are you accepting pairing requests? Yes, I am. Okay, well, I want to connect. And you knew you could predict in advance what the cryptographic key would be. And so this is why we don't need companies adding back doors for security, um, you know, for the police to get in. There's already enough back doors in software that's been accidentally put in. <laughs> or front doors, you might say. Yeah. <laughs> The real problem here is is that that issue of scale, um, or you know, the percolation of this problem through the Internet of Things community of devices. And in the Naked Security article we wrote about this, uh, we enumerated three problems that this brings out. That even if you read the article, you get the list of vendors and products that they actually tried. A how do you know which products in the market are actually using those vendors' chips? That can be hard to find out. Secondly, how do you know which products have been patched? Uh, and if so, how you get those updates? And thirdly, how do you know if the product you've bought that does use one of these chipsets that has got a firmware upgrade from the maker of the chipset, how do you know that the device you bought actually allows you to update it. Because the fact that the vendor has an update for their bit of your device doesn't mean that your device may have been built to accept it. And there are still IoT devices out there built down to such a low price that, yeah, yeah you can't update them at all ever. And you kind of have little choice then but to put them into landfill, which seems to be a like a a, 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 a terrible issue on very many levels, not just cybersecurity level. Yeah. So is there any kind of pragmatic advice we can give to people about this? I mean, uh, you make a good point. Like it's nigh on impossible. If you bought some cheap Bluetooth headset or something, that's not going to give you a good technical breakdown of all the various components that are inside it and so on. So it's going to be hard to validate this, you know, if you're going to be vulnerable to these kind of uh, exploits. Well, the uh, there are a few things that you can do. Now, given that you may have Internet of Things devices in your life, in your home, that you kind of rely on more than you think, they may have bugs over and above these particular ones. But use this story as a reason to get into the habit of checking intermittently that your long-running IoT devices haven't crashed, that they haven't frozen, that they are still working correctly. Make sure that if you've got a an internet controlled plug that you expect to be working, check that it hasn't crashed. That way, if someone does unleash one of these bugs against you, you will actually know sooner rather than later. Secondly, whatever device you've got, find out as soon as you get it, whether the manufacturer, or hopefully even look, look for evidence of this beforehand, does the vendor you're choosing provide patches? And if so, how do you apply them? What process do you need to go through? Where do you get them? How do you get them onto the device? 
So I'm um, I'm at home. So Greg and I are uh, recording remotely today, and I, so I'm at home. And I'm looking at one of my internet connected plugs, and I'm going, "How on earth do I check if that's crashed?" Other than asking Google to turn the light on that it's connected to and seeing if it turns on. Well, that's one way. Many devices do have a sort of, are you there? Yes, I am, which at least shows they're responding. There might be an app where you can say, show me the status of the device. And if you just try that once in a while and it goes, hey, I'm not getting through to the device, even though it seems to be turned on, then that's worthy of further investigation. And then the last tip. Now, I don't have a vulnerable device to test this advice against. So I'm only assuming that this is correct, but that um, that pairing problem where you can pretend to start pairing and then connect with the key of all zeros. My recommendation or my assumption is that if you put your device into what's called undiscoverable mode, what that should do in theory is it doesn't mean that the device can't be connected to by a device that's already paired with it. It just means that it should be sealed off from accepting future pairing requests. So my recommendation is, just in case there is a pairing bug in a device that you've got, don't make it discoverable unless you expect to be getting pairing requests from other people. Fantastic. Thanks, Doug. Uh, right. Uh, Peter, where can we find you on social media? <laughs> I'm on Twitter at Alt Shift Print Screen. Doug? At DuckBlog on Twitter and, very simple, at PDucklin on Instagram. You can find me as at Secbug on Twitter and Secbug on Reddit. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Naked Security Podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever podcast app of your choice. Please rate us, drop us some likes, write a review, leave us some comments. Uh, you know, help us keep motivated to make this podcast. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, uh, and make sure to check out nakedsecurity.sophos.com, our award-winning threat newsroom where every day we give you new news, opinion, advice, and research on computer security issues and the latest internet threats. Thank you so much. Until next week, stay, stay secure. secure.